The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Assuming everyone's on the email list, and uh, we have a chance to thank Kevin, who manages our webpage and does a lot of other things with the recordings here at the center. So thanks for keeping that Buddhist Studies webpage up to date, Kevin. So you can always go to the webpage um, if for some reason you don't have the email. And you can find that by going to the homepage. Under Resources, you'll see the link to the Buddhist Studies webpage. And the current course should be what's front and center. And you can even, if you wanted to, not that you'd need to, but... Um, the 2013 course on dukkha is up there, and things are changing. You know, it's not the same as this one. So, if you want more depth or more breadth, take a look at that stuff. And then the other link I sent is for Dharma Seed. Most of you know about dharmaseed.org. It's a website. So all the people who teach at Spirit Rock and IMS, all of our talks are up there. So you can search by a teacher, but you can also search by subject. So you could put dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. The link I sent in today's email is just for pain. I just put pain in the search. And then anybody's talk in the description, if the word pain is there, you'll see that. So if you want to do a little bit more listening for, from other teachers, then you can kind of follow that link. And, uh, and then there are several articles. So we'll... Dig into this first kind of dukkha, dukkha dukkha, that I explained week one. Right, there are three types of dukkha that Buddha described: dukkha dukkha, the ordinary and unavoidable mental and physical pain, and then there's viparanami dukkha, the dukkha that even when things are pleasant, but realizing to some degree I can't count on the nice conditions, that is a particular kind of suffering or dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And then sankara dukkha, excuse me, which is the most subtle of the three dukkhas. And it really arises from the deluded sense, the unseen deluded sense that there's a me in a permanent separate sense that wants solid ground but can't find it. So that more existential uneasiness of being identified with the idea of a separate me, and there's nature, and here's me looking for solid ground in nature where I can be happy, where I can be safe, secure, no uncertainty, no vulnerability. And when you look through human history and literature and religious kind of ideas, you see so many different expressions of what the human imagination imagines is that safe spot, right? I mean, just even in, in kind of more ordinary culture, like at some point, I mean, they, you know, in different cultures, different places, but where the romantic idea, like the partner, is going to create that safety, the perfect, my soulmate, you know, right? So if it isn't a religious idea, it's a romantic idea, or it's a cabin on the South Shore of Lake Superior that's going to make me happy, or having a lot of power, a lot of wealth, or whatever, you know, getting really, really healthy as if that's solid or will last, whatever it might be. Now, it's okay to pursue all of that. You can fall in love, you can have a wonderful family, you can get your body into shape, you can have a cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior, you can, you know, we can do whatever we want. And if we're expecting it to be something it can't be, there will be suffering. That's that sankara suffering. But if we're not expecting it to be something it can't be, then it's just activity, right? And it might be pleasant in that ordinary sense and unpleasant. But at least there won't be that deeper 
uneasiness, where on some level the heart, mostly we're in denial, but on some level the heart knows or fears this will never deliver what I want, but I'm too frightened to admit that to myself, so I'm going to pursue it anyway. And that that's kind of a lot of what our life is about. Pursuing things because we think it's going to save us, even though we kind of know it's not, but we really don't want to get clear with ourselves because we don't really have another alternative to motivate our life. So we're just going to keep doing the same thing, even though we suspect it's not going to you know, take care of us. It's kind of a tragedy, that situation. And so when we get that sense, we get curious. Okay, I can endlessly run from dukkha, which is the cause for dukkha, not liking the way that it is, or I can get curious. So in a way, people ask you why you come to a place like Kamgaon or why you study the Buddhist teachings, you can say, I've decided instead of running in loops neurotically, I'll get interested in what the heck's going on here in the heart, in the mind, in this human life. I've decided, I've chosen curiosity and humility, they kind of go together, instead of sort of pretending that I know how to be happy or where real lasting happiness lies. And uh, physical pain, mental pain, just ordinary pain of disappointment and feeling insulted and, you know, as well as all the aches and pains we have with the body. It's a very good teacher for us. But we have to, like I mentioned in the guided meditation, we have to turn that corner because it's such a strong, it's like, that's why you want to start with just ordinary discomfort that you can really handle. And by handle, I mean you're really okay sitting still with it, staying just like in the posture, like when you're doing your formal meditation. You're not squirming. So that more ordinary or mild level of physical pain can be a really powerful teacher because it's obvious enough that it will, even if we have the idea of being with our meditation object, like the more traditional object of the breath, it's just going to present itself front and center. Hey, look at me. Knee hurts, throbbing, burning, you know, or yucky feeling in the heart from something that happened earlier in the day. So that ordinary mild level of pain, just because of the way our mind has evolved through evolution, you know, the mind is interested in threats. So physical pain is like some information. Now that's kind of a blunt system. So we don't really know until we investigate whether the pain is actually something we need to do something about or something we can just tolerate. And same with emotional pain. Sometimes like that little ooh means, you know, I really need to sit down and talk to this person or I really have to stop seeing that person. I need to change the job, you know, I need to call the police. So sometimes that the information, pain is information, it's really like helping us see, oh yeah, actions required here. And then of course, if that's the case, you do that. Same with like when you're sitting and, oh yeah, okay, I got some physical pain. Mark said, just see if you can sit with it. Well, sometimes as you get, you know, Start allowing it, because it's going to do it probably anyway, coming into the front and center of awareness, right? Look at me. We realize that uh, I just don't have right now, maybe never, but certainly not now, I don't have the stability. I don't trust relaxing and allowing this emotional pain, this physical pain. So then, first step is, we need nothing happens, no real learning inside happens if there's not some degree of safety. I mean, there's always a few stories of, you know, that where you get trapped. There's no way out. Like you have pain, emotional pain, physical pain, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
to modify it or even distract yourself. And every once in a while, when we get pinned by life up, up into the corner, right, there can be some learning. But it isn't like we wouldn't choose to learn that way. You'll see, uh, I forget, I have two articles by Darlene Cohen. She was the abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center. So it was one of the articles I sent. It was the first, I think it's the link, the first link there. And there are several authors talking about physical pain. And she talks about her practice and really that, in a really vivid way about being trapped. Maybe I'll just read that now. Because we don't want to like, when we're trapped, <laughs> we're trapped. Right, so it doesn't it doesn't really help at that point to complain or say, well, it isn't fair that I'm trapped, where there's physical pain and there's nothing really you can imagine doing about it, or there's mental pain and you can't imagine doing anything about it. You feel trapped by it. Here's at the very end. Now, this isn't the one I sent you, so I'm going to read from this article. But the article I sent you covers a lot of what's in this wonderful book. It's quite, it's been around for a while now. It's called um, Being Bodies. And then the subtitle is something, um, you know, Buddhist women teachers talking about the paradox of embodiment, something like that. Does that sound right? It's a great book. There's some great articles, including Joko Beck has a wonderful chapter in that book. And Darlene Cohen does as well. And this is from her chapter, which she titled Body as Suffering. And uh, this is right at the very end. People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain. So she had rheumatoid arthritis, among other difficult physical conditions, how in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow, crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. (laughs) We don't want to hear this. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again and am flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First I feel the despair, but I deny it. See, this is why we want to work with more mild difficulties. right? So we're ready when it's not mild. I don't. Um, I've been around that wheel a million times. First, I feel the despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then it, then its tugs become more insistent, in proportion to my resistance. And finally, it overwhelms me, pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I am caught. So at last, I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately the release begins. First peace, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours, but I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something else, like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist until it overwhelms me. But I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. It seems to me that when we fall ill, we have an opportunity we may not have noticed 
when we were well, to literally incorporate the wisdom of the Buddhas and to present it as our own body. So I uh, just pasted uh, her section of that article in the email itself, in the body of the email, in case you don't want to read the whole um, collection of authors uh, in that first link. You can just read hers. And she's just talking about you know, this work of working with her pain, physical pain mostly. And I talked about, you know, in both, I think, many of our Buddhist studies courses, but this transition from thinking that the body is here like to serve us or to be my vehicle for pleasure as opposed to the body and our sensitive heart, this emotional heart that senses, feels loss, feels hope and disappointment and the whole range of human emotion. Instead of that sort of conditioned thought that my body, my life is here in the service of my happiness, we're doing this difficult transition to my life is here, my body is here, either as a teacher or as sort of a cause for confusion and betrayal. So we really have to remember to see life and experience as a teacher. And what is it teaching us? What can only teach us really one thing which is, I wonder what freedom looks like and feels like when it's like this now. So if you're sitting and you have knee pain, I wonder what freedom, I wonder what release, the release of a Buddha, is like when the knee hurts like this, or when the heart aches like this, or when there's this sort of sterile numbness like this, or this frenetic restlessness like this, or this dead-to-the-world quality in the body and mind like this. So whatever the particular affliction is, more physical, more mental-emotional, it's it's really challenging the deeply conditioned response, conditioned response, this is a problem. I think I mentioned the guy that said deny... It comes from Joseph Goldstein. Like, when the mind has any thought, like, I can't practice until it's different conditions, until this goes away, right? Then don't believe that thought. So that's that turning point from when life is, you know, difficult. Then uh, is this a pro- is this a personal? You can even ask this question: Is this a personal problem? Or is this a really interesting teacher? And that's a nice way to frame it, like, because I don't know that humility. Because actually, both possibilities exist clearly. Because it can really feel like my life is here to torment me, and when I get free of this torment, then I'll be happy. Or, in moments, especially with some practice, we can actually get curious. And I think I might have mentioned in one of the first couple of weeks of this course, that's often like when people ask, which, you know, every once in a while someone will ask, well, you've been practicing for a while, what do you notice? And that that's kind of, a, for me, a really honest and interesting response to that question, like, well, what are the fruit, what are the fruits of 37 years of pretty dedicated practice? And it's like, not being surprised by suffering, and uh, instead of being surprised, like being really interested, like is this really a problem? And I'm always curious when suffering shows up in a way that is more fresh, like I haven't seen it a million times, and because uh, like, like some of the things I've seen so many times, it's really like even. I'm not saying I'm not afraid of death, but I'm not afraid of my ideas of death, right? I haven't met death, 
But I've definitely met my ideas of my death a lot, right? I've thought about it. I've been interested in it for a long time. And it, I rarely, like, whether it's like watching a scary film or, you know, I rarely have a thought about death that scares me. Now, it's kind of interesting. But every once in a while, there will be some unique experience that kind of scares me or, you know, um, repulses me or, you know, I feel threatened in some way. And I get very interested now. It's like, whoa, I really want to run. I really want to. But I'm, I have a lot of confidence. I don't think this is actually a problem. Let's see. Let's see. Because it might be like being in the vicinity of total humiliation might be one of the things that still can be really fresh. Or, um, yeah, just it's sort of different kinds of embarrassments. Um, and and how to, like, you know, it's, it's sort of, not that it has to be in a formal set, but energetically it's like taking our seat, even if we're nowhere close to, like, formally meditating. But that energetic sense of, oh yeah, my teacher's in the room, I'm going to take my seat, and I'm going to see what can be learned. And remember, we have some moves, because a lot of times we think there's just one move, which is like I bring my awareness right to the place of greatest unpleasantness. Right? It's sort of like that standoff. I'm not afraid of you. I'm willing to feel anything you got. Now that's a useful move, but it's only it should only be one of many moves, right? If that's our only move, well, we're not going to be very effective when difficulty shows up because sometimes right because it like it's always a matter of what has more momentum, the habit of running or the habit of numbing out or the habit of you know whimpering and feeling victimized by the experience, or the curiosity. And it's not personal, like what has more momentum in that moment. So to the degree that wisdom assesses, get me the hell out of here, is a lot stronger than, oh, this is interesting, right? Then we shouldn't do that like opening right to the center of it. We should do something like, I know you're there, and now I'm going to bring my awareness over here. I'm going to turn away, right? or I'm going to orbit at a great distance, or notice that you're just one of many things. I'm going to open my eyes, I'm going to walk out around the block, and whatever that terror is, you know, it's just one of this vast dance of my life. It's not the only thing. Or I'm going to bring in loving kindness. Or I'm going to do whatever works, you know. So there's any number of ways to begin to, um, I guess, dance or interact. Because even if we don't know what to do, like we can't remember, and this is often the case when we're faced with something really difficult, is that we sort of freeze up and we don't remember anything we've learned. Even though we've been working with difficulty a lot over the decades of our lives, there we are faced with some physical or emotional pain. And you know how it is. It's like even with those of you who've worked with children or have children, when when they're really faced with difficulty, it's almost like you see them going from being an eight-year-old, six-year-old, four-year-old, and if it's really difficult, they become a two-year-old or worse or younger, you know. <laughs> And it's, we adults, we're not that much different. We just mask it a little bit better, but it just makes it in a way more neurotic. You know, it'd be better just to sort of say to our friend or partner, you've got a three-year-old on your hand for a few hours. (laughs) Where's my bottle? (laughs) I mean, actually, it it would be useful because sometimes... It's nice to get that sort of primal 
soothing that we can get from a trusted other. I mean, ideally, we'd be able to do it to ourselves. Metta practice isn't really... It's like one of the qualities of that self-love, self-compassion, is it's like totally willing to meet us in a way that's helpful. It doesn't have any other agenda but to meet us in a way that's actually helpful. That's what love does. It doesn't have its own agenda. It just wants to be helpful, useful. So it's really nice to know that when you know we hear these stories like I read from Darlene, that sort of fierce, um, well, not really fierce, just sort of no choice, you know, getting consumed, getting sucked into the vortex of our pain. But even then, you know, like the... I, I don't know how much of this is projection, but I, and I mentioned this sometimes about our cat and catching the things it catches out in the yard. And, uh, but it's just sort of interesting when you see an animal catch another animal. And once they know they're caught, they relax. They relax. And if there seems to be a little out, they spring back to life. But they don't bother thrashing around when they're caught. They relax. And there's a famous story from the time of the Buddha where there was a, a monk was caught by a tiger and was getting mauled by this tiger. And uh, because the way it normally works is they kind of camp near each other but far enough that they have seclusion and then they walk early in the morning, they get their meals, they usually walk together into town, collect their food, come back, they might eat their meal together, talk about practice for a while, and then they go to their little, each of them, you know, where their camp is, or their hut, or their, you know, place under a big tree. So they, you know, they're away from each other, and one guy got caught by a tiger, and but they could definitely hear it, and they all gathered around, but kept their distance, and, uh, and just encouraging him to be mindful, you know, not to, and, and it would just be interesting like when, you know, and some of us have had serious medical conditions when we were, we were that trapped animal in the hospital, you know, feeling really, really lousy. Or we were that person going through a divorce or going through a breakup. And instead of physical pain, it was just that unbearable whatever feeling in the heart, mind, body, and nowhere to run, right? And just sort of what have we learned? Because sometimes all we have learned is to bear it, to surrender to it, to let it, like I think Darlene used that word, annihilate us. Really let it consume us. And it's kind of an act of faith like maybe the heart, mind, or this life, maybe it's okay to feel this intensity. Maybe it's actually okay to hurt this much. How do I actually know it's dangerous to feel what I'm feeling? And that's why it's really useful to work with more ordinary things to build the confidence. Because like even something small like a fly crawling on our skin or um, yesterday I was <laughs> watching our cat with a little beast, I think it was a little mouse, and I, and I just paused, but I happened to pause next to a wasp nest and I got stung. It got between my, I was wearing a long sleeve shirt and it must have flown up there and then you get this like really sharp pain. I don't know if you've been stung recently. It's so interesting, just that intensity. And just to, you know, and I had the wherewithal to kind of, once I realized what had happened, and just to sort of like bear it. And it's such an sharp, icy, I mean, it really feels like there's glass in there or something. You know, some, something is sort of cut in. And, uh, but it's just so interesting because 
pain is just information, but it's a blunt information. It's basically saying something's up. Something's up. That's all it's saying. And then wisdom takes a look. Okay, what's up? Oh, it's a, and then wisdom goes, well, is there anything we can do? And sometimes there is. You know, I'll put an ice cube on it or I'll do this or do that. But sometimes there really isn't anything to do. And then that's the, once you've done what can be done, which is always, it's not anti-Buddhist to do what can be done to modify pain, right? There's nothing wrong with putting a sweater on when you're cold or doing taking an aspirin when your joints ache or something like that. But even when there are some things we can do when we do them, we're not out of the woods. There's still pain. And then it's that's the place for practice. Okay, this is interesting. And uh, just to see it as a teacher, okay, that we're interacting with, and we'll just learn like what helps and what doesn't help if we're interested in that dance. And like I mentioned earlier, the, the big turning point is changing the relationship with pain and these all three of these levels of pain. So the first next two weeks, tonight, next week, we'll talk about dukkha dukkha. So let's really get interested in dukkha dukkha which includes all the variety of mental pain and all the variety of physical pain. And just notice the difference between the unavoidable part of the pain and how the mind relates to it that amplifies or adds to the pain. So I think it can be useful to distinguish with different words. So pain, when we use pain, we're talking about the ordinary, unavoidable mental and physical unpleasantness that comes our way as human beings. And suffering is the avoidable mental pain that we add when we resist the unavoidable mental and physical pain. Does that make sense? And really get clear. And you can even ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? Am I feeling the unavoidable mental or physical pain that comes with being a human being? Or am I experiencing avoidable, optional suffering that comes when the mind is resisting the ordinary ups and downs of life? That would be really useful. Because if, if you're at the level of the unavoidable discomfort, then you really, that's that like, take me. And and you're not losing that sort of breadth of awareness because you might think, oh, you know what, I could do this, that might modify it. And you might do that, like if, unless you're sitting and you made a resolve to sit for 30 minutes, then you might do it after your sit ends, right? But you're not, you know, if some creative idea comes unless you just feel like, you know, I may not get an o- another opportunity to work with this intensity. I could make it go away by doing X or Y, but I'm not. I'm just going to practice with it. And people do that. I mean, just things like fasting for a day can be unpleasant, but it can be very useful teacher. Or even something more fun, like going backpacking, you know, carrying a 40-pound backpack for 10 miles a day. It's like not pleasant. But it's interesting to sort of just lean into that, you know, to be uh, a beast that carries stuff or whatever else that people do sometimes. Spicy food sometimes. It's just kind of interesting to get to start exploring like what makes pain suffering. A lot of it is the mind's attitude, right? Because there's a lot of what human beings do that some people would consider, you know, not okay, but people choose to do that. 
And this is the whole thing of what is the mind bringing to this? What is the conditioned mind bringing to this experience? So some of the articles you'll see, this takes a lot of samadhi, but what, I mean, it takes a lot of samadhi when the pain is intense, but when it's more ordinary or mild pain, it doesn't take that much concentration where you're really curious and you're seeing the pain as sensation, whether emotional or physical. No thought. So the experience isn't being mediated by your thoughts. There may be thoughts, but they're in the periphery and the attention is only interested in the actual... Because even if it's an emotional pain, it's alive in the body, isn't it? Like if you had a breakup, or even a painful memory from long ago that still has some legs and you're feeling whatever it feels like in your body, that ache or that sadness or whatever it is. It's so interesting when you get to the level of sensation, then you can just drop in the question, is this a problem? Feeling this, being intimate with this, is this actually a problem? Because the mind will know that it's unpleasant and the mind will also know, and it feels really good to be intimate. It's unpleasant, but it feels really good to be interested, to be intimate, and to be allowing it to do what it's doing, to move. And it kind of blows our whole theory of pain when we start realizing, like one of my teachers when I was uh, practicing in Burma for five months, um, Saito Ujanaka often said, forget exactly his way of saying it, but pain is your vehicle t- for Nibbana, right? It's like it really will teach us what we need to learn. And so our job as a practitioner is more like how we set up our interaction with our teacher. And know, like some teachers, like I mentioned earlier, we can't just say yes to. Because we just, in that moment, it's too much. And we're like children who are experiencing a lot of pain and we bury it. You know, that Hopefully we don't have to do that too much as an adult. But probably sometimes we can't just take it in one gulp and just meet it in an authentic, direct, relaxed way. We, we need a little denial. It's so interesting when we don't de- you know, usually notice it in ourselves, but we can notice it in a friend. Like, you know being with a friend who's in the middle of a breakup and it's experiencing a lot of emotional pain. And you'll just see how the mind plays with denial. Oh, this person, they're going to come to their senses, we'll get back together. you know. And you're going, not going to happen. But they're sort of like putting some story together that allows them to handle what's happening. you know. And it may take them a couple of weeks until they really get, oh, this is over. This is over now. This is what it feels like when something I thought wasn't going to be over is over. Most of us know that feeling. It's such an interesting feeling because the mind is so dependent on its stories. And so if my story includes another person and then that person isn't in the story anymore, we don't know who we are. It's just an interesting time when those uh, those structures, you know, just disappear from our lives. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's article, uh, which I sent you. And I don't know if you know about Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a senior Western monk. He has done a lot of the translations of the Buddhist teachings. We're so in debt of his work for so many decades. He's probably getting close to 80. But since 1976, a few years after he ordained, he has had migraines, serious migraines. And uh, so he knows a lot about chronic pain. When I write about living with pain, I don't have to use my imagination. 
Since 1976, I've been afflicted with chronic head pain that has grown worse over the decades. This condition has thrown a granite boulder across the tracks of my meditation practice. Pain often wipes a day and night off my calendar, and sometimes more at a stretch. The condition has cost me a total of several years of productive activity because intense head pain makes reading difficulty, uh, difficult. It has at times even threatened my vocation as a scholar and translator of Buddhist texts. In search of a cure, I have consulted not only practitioners of Western medicine, but also herbal physicians in remote Sri Lankan villages. I've been pierced countless times by acupuncture needles. I've subjected my body to the hands of a Chinese massage therapist in Singapore, consumed Tibetan medicine pills and dharmasala, and sought help from exorcists and chakra healers in Bali with only moderate success. I currently depend on several medications to keep the pain under control. They cannot extricate it by the root, right? So this is like, you know, whether we have this particular kind of condition, but this sort of exposure comes with human existence. We're exposed to uncertainty, and that exists on the level of the body, it exists on the level of the mind, right? And then a little later he writes, uh, just starting to summarize some of what he's learned over all these years of working with chronic pain. First of all, it's useful to recognize the distinction between physical pain and the mental reaction to it. Although body and mind are closely intertwined, the mind does not have to share the same fate as the body. When the body feels pain, the mind can stand back from it. Instead of allowing itself to be dragged down, the mind can simply observe pain. Indeed, the mind can even turn the pain around and transform it into a means of inner growth. And I think I mentioned that first week about the simile of the arrow or the dart. Did I, didn't I talk about that that first week? And if we don't have any strategies when mental or physical pain come our way, then we seek distraction. What can I, what pleasant experience can I absorb into, right? We're having a difficult day at work. What do we do with our mind? We think about, I mean, some treat, some sense treat, some funny show I can watch, some delicious food I can eat. Imagine getting away from it all, so it's even an enticing fantasy. But that's how we modify yucky feeling, is we look for something pleasant. And it's a pretty limited addiction, really. It's an addiction. And so... But we're basically trapped. Like if we don't have wisdom of how to relate to pain with interest as a teacher that teaches us liberation, like, I don't know if you saw what I wrote in the email, but is it possible to be exposed, intimate, open to mental and physical pain and not be burdened by it, and realize freedom with it. Is that possible? Have we experienced that in some places? Like where meditators learn this, and I bet more than a few of you have had this experience. You're sitting, you know, and maybe you're trapped at a sit at come ground where you can't leave in the middle, you know, a 30-minute sit or something like that. And in the first five or ten minutes, it really feels unbearable. But you hang in there and you... You kind of meet your teacher and you do your dance. And then at some point, and you were, I mean, it really felt unworkable. But at some point, the mind realizes it's really not a problem. There isn't anybody suffering. The body's the body, whatever that might be in the moment. But there is nobody who has a problem. And that's a real turning point. Now, how many people have had 
a similar experience to that in a sit. In a, right? Have you seen what felt unworkable? A lot of you are nodding, but I'm guessing you know at least half of the room, maybe three quarters of the room, know that experience pretty well. Not just like one time in 30 years of practice, but a regular occurrence in sitting where something appears unworkable and then later it's very clear that it's workable. And what's changed? Right? Just the mind's understanding. The mind was wrong and then it came to understand, no, no, this is workable. And then eventually that becomes the new habit of the mind. So when something surprising and tragic happens to us, that starts to kick in. Not that that we'd say it in these words, but something like, this is totally not okay, this definitely feels unworkable, but I'm pretty sure it's workable. It appears unworkable, but I'm pretty sure it will be okay. Not okay in the sense that it's not what it appears to be, but that it will be okay. I had one of those today. I can't talk about it right now. But, you know, just kind of a really surprising thing that, you know, it's going to really affect me. And uh, it was so nice to see a kind of lightness, like, whoa, this will be interesting. I have no idea how this is going to play out. And uh, it will be interesting to see how this plays out. And I really deeply appreciate that that is the fruit of practice, that the mind that is sort of from the default being this is not okay, this is not okay, this is not okay. You know, it's just sort of like re- repeating record, you know, it's just like that's not helpful. <laughs> you know, just like I'm screwed, I'm screwed, I'm screwed. <laughs> to, yeah, I have no idea how this is going to play out, but I'm pretty sure it's workable. It's like it becomes the default assumption. Everything's workable. Death is workable. Living a long time is workable. Being really successful, being a failure. Like we talk about eight worldly wins. Gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. So I'll leave it here. And uh, we'll take a little time. We have about 10 minutes just to hear people's thoughts. We'll have small groups next week. And remember then, the homework is to really dig in with mental and physical pain as a teacher. And be fun with it. Like, ah, you know, this will be interesting. Let me get to know you. And use whatever resources you need to stay close. The touch and go, the wide orbit, taking, like, really seeing it, the pain, the difficulty is just one of many aspects of the present moment, and fearlessly, fearlessly going right into the heart of it. So, you might even, to now, in the time we have, you might just share different ways you're dancing with mental or physical pain that you're experiencing in your life. Yeah, it comes to mind. You want to start us off, Tim? Good evening. Lately, I've been practicing seeing dukkha in in my relationships. Not not the, like the ideas of relationships I have in my mind, but like face to face with people, and I keep seeing this. It's like this recurrent dissatisfaction with everyone who comes in front of me. You mean not liking them? Is that what you mean? No. <laughs> it's not it's okay a not like straightforward. It, it, well, it's I experience it more like what is this person doing for me right now? <laughs> and I and then that shows up and then all of a sudden it's like it is not this person's job to please me. Like that is not the function of their existence. <laughs> and when when that when that whole mind stream kind of dissipates, a huge amount of love for for that person is able is like unlocked in me. So that's what I'm experiencing. Yeah, yeah. 
And so that, that's like one of the lessons that pain can teach because you didn't say it exactly that way, Tim, but you know the expectation, they're here to make me feel good or whatever. And the dukkha is what you saw here, like that expectation, that's what's weightful, that's what is a burden, that expectation itself. Not that they can't meet your need or make you happy, but that the heart is dependent. And when that went away, then there was something else, like you said. Yeah, thanks. Did you want to go next, Travis? So I'm Travis. Um, So what this brings to mind for me is that I've always been someone afflicted by physical sensations that aren't real, and it's really terrifying, like... I went through a whole time period where, like, I thought I couldn't breathe, and it was even connected to, like, my dad died of cancer when I was younger, and, like, it's, like, psychosomatic stuff. Like, it could be these powerful headaches, you but know. That, that's what I said earlier. Remember that mental pain is almost always expressed with bodily sensation, right? Because the body can't help but mirror what's going on in the mind. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call, that's real sensation, right? So it's not made up or whatever. It's just, its cause is that it's reflecting something going on in the mind. As opposed to, you've got pressure, physical pressure on your chest or something. And and like the way I found out of it more is kind of just sitting with it. Because before I would be so like reactive to it that all of a sudden I'm caught in a loop. Where then all of a sudden it's just like getting worse and worse and... That I'm taking medications, and it's it, it, it it's hard, but it's something I I've definitely seen the other side of now. But I yeah. just wanted to comment about that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And and one of the things we'll see, like in terms of our habit with pain, is the basic panic uh, pattern, where our response to pain amplifies the discomfort, and so then we respond to that and amplify. And then eventually it gets to be that sort of, it feels like we're going to die or explode, right? So that's the basic movement of a panic attack. And some people, you know, experience that more regularly than others. But we're all playing, like when we're unskillfully relating to pain, we're basically in that pattern of some kind. Yeah. Thanks, Travis. Who'd like to go next? Laura, rather. Yeah. Um... So I was just in the Boundary Waters and it was really cool because it kind of felt like a retreat and like a different version of retreat. Um, Because like the first day was really beautiful and sunny and like 80 degrees. Then the second day was like cold (laughs) and, you know, like 40s or 50s. And then just kind of realizing unpleasant and then... Then feeling, then noticing neutral. Um, And then just kind of like all, well, okay. So I'm totally, I totally have greedy tendencies. So like if I feel unpleasant and I like want to take a bath (laughs) or something Um, or like go out to eat or have a kombucha, but there's like no, you know, there's like no escape. You're like there, you can put on another layer (laughs) that's here comfort um but then like noticing just all the other days and like the flavor of the days and like then it was really windy and then like the last day was like misty and totally tranquil and it just reminded me of life (laughs) and just like you know like this is life Sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like this, and it's all moving and changing and kind of like the only thing you can do is be with it. Like it doesn't help, it doesn't do anything to like hate the cold or to like fall in love with the sun or like whatever. Um, Yeah, so just kind of letting that in and then seeing like the practice through that experience. Thanks. That was beautiful. Who'd like to go next? How are you working with? I think being out in wilderness, backpacking, that kind of thing, because being in our comfort zones, like in our homes, there's something more raw about blisters and mosquitoes and exposure to the weather that 
we learn a lot about what we're talking about with pain. Yeah, Joe. So there's a, a story that um, where George Bush was reading the kids um, a children book, and then 9-11 happened. And the Dalai Lama's talking about this. And so he was really criticized, Bush was, for not, like, jumping into action and, and taking care of, you know, things that happened. But the Dalai Lama's saying, no, this is a very human thing to do. He did the right thing. He was almost like the bird, you know, that gets caught or... Um, you just sit it out. You're, you're, you know, you just wait it out, and, you, and you're in trauma. You know, so um, anyways, that was part of the story. But on a more personal level, too, I, understanding about like a broken heart, and I've heard that if the heart can actually get damaged from a, a broken heart, so um, that kind of thing is kind of interesting too. And and for me, it took quite a while just to like f- try and figure it out. So yeah, thanks, Joe. And time for one last comment or sharing, if there's anybody else who'd like to speak before we end tonight. What have you, how are you working with discomfort, emotional, mental, physical? What are you learning? Yeah, Kim. After experiencing calm and sits, and then noticing unpleasant sensations come up, and really shift into I'll sit with these unpleasant sensations in order to get back that calm. And it's interesting, this in order to mind, it's so conditioned, it feels really something to be very curious in as like an identity. And I just, yeah, there's, I really don't have an identity to kind of show up and understand what this is and that's kind of interesting like just asking the question well what is this yeah and that would be that's a really good thing to have brought up a good place to end too so in our small groups next week really investigate what cam was pointing to like even when it looks like you're practicing correctly with the pain be on the lookout for that i'm practicing in order to make it go away right because I know we, it is true, we, we are interested in the suffering, the mental resistance to the physical pain, the unnecessary pain of resistance. We are interested in that going away. I am. But the way that it goes away is, like you said at the end, it's not just being interested. I just want to be close. I just want to learn how to be skillful. When it's like this, I want to learn how to be skillful. I want to learn how to take care of this body, this heart, this mind, when it's like this. right? And we'll find, like your comment suggests, that wanting the pain to go away is a cause for pain. Because we're positioning ourselves as a someone who's threatened by pain. Well, that's a very precarious way to position ourselves when we're a human being that is living, vulnerable to pain, mental and physical pain, right? So every time we're putting that stake in the ground, like I'm going to do something to make pain go away. So when we put the sweater on because we're cold, it's nice to like in a playful way just say, yeah, I can modify the discomfort of cold now. But I'm not in control. You know? Some pains can be alleviated and some pains can't. Can I make peace with that? Can I get really close to that exposure that comes? So let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds now. Let go of the words. Appreciate being in community together. Appreciate the folks before us who have passed these teachings down to us. This very deep and wide stream, river of love and wisdom that we can be part of. And really living and practicing for the benefit of all those around us all those to come. And thanks everyone for being here.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.